So over the summer, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' great and at times surprising unveiling of what life in God's kingdom looks like. And in it, he describes the culture of what God's kingdom is, when God's will is done by his people. And he describes in detail, not simply how we're to act, but actually how we're to be. Jesus invites us through the transformative power of his loving presence and Holy Spirit to become the type of people who naturally live the way that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, we're talking about, I think, maybe the hardest teaching in all of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is on retaliation and loving our enemies. It's so counterintuitive to how we, I'll speak for myself, how I want to react when faced with someone who I consider an enemy. So turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and would you read with me? And it'll be on the screen as well. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you're to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, these words are, man, they're challenging. Um, There's a part of me that wants them to be true, that wants uh, my own heart to naturally love my enemies. Um, But I also know that these words are really, really hard. Um, I don't do this very often. I'm not there yet. Um, But God, you say that this is the best way to live, that this is actually what life in your kingdom looks like, that your followers have this kind of loving heart even towards their enemies. And I pray that you would meet us today and that you would invite us into a generosity of heart towards our friends and those that we consider enemies. Would you speak to me today, God? Would you speak through me? Uh, Honestly, I feel like I'm preaching to myself um, because I'm not very good at this. Um, So, Lord, would you have mercy like we prayed during the first set of worship? Amen. Well, I'll be honest and, and say that when I initially read the passage that I was going to be teaching on, I I really don't like this teaching of Jesus. Um, I really wish that Jesus had said, if someone slaps you, you slap that fool right back. (laughs) Love your neighbor, block your enemy on social media and ignore them, because that is just way, way easier. Uh, But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. Um, Part of me also dislikes this teaching uh, because It has been used throughout history to silence and shame people that are on the receiving end of abuse and injustice and oppression. People have been told to be quiet and to shut up because the Bible says so. And I think that that is a really gross misinterpretation of this passage, but it kind of is the baggage that this passage brings. Um, 
Now, as I've studied and as I've just really prayed and sat with this, I, I really believe that this passage is a beautiful invitation to us and in some ways contains the key to, to a thriving, loving life. This passage begins with Jesus quoting from the Old Testament law. He says, and it'll be on the screen, you've heard the law that says the punish, punishment must match the injury, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say do not resist an evil person. And so Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy 19, uh, what scholars call the lex talionis, uh, which according to Google is Latin for the law of retribution. And understanding the heart of this law of retribution is really important to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the law of retribution, which is in the full context of Deuteronomy 19 as follows. If a malicious witness comes forward and accuses someone of a crime, then both the accuser and the accused must appear before the Lord by coming to the priests and judges in office at that time. The judges must investigate the case thoroughly. If an accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose on the accuser the sentence he intended for the other person. In this way, you'll purge such evil from among you. Then the rest of the people will hear about it and be afraid to do such an evil thing. You must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So I think we tend to hear eye for an eye, and we think, you hurt me, I hurt you, right? You insult me, I get to insult you. It's actually a, a phrase in our culture, eye for an eye. But when you look at the full context of that quote in the law in Deuteronomy, you see that the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth part was actually not to be carried out by the injured party on the person who injured them. It was actually to be carried out by the justice system in Israel, the priests and the, and the uh, judges. What that means is it was explicitly designed to actually prevent people from taking justice into their own hands. And it was designed to prevent an escalation of violence because what actually happens when we try to do eye for an eye? Things escalate, right? Eye for an eye becomes eye for your face. You break my finger, I break your whole arm. You hit me, I hit you back 10 times harder. And God knows this about us, which is why the law of retribution was brilliantly designed, I think, to prevent this escalation of personal violence. But in Jesus' day, the law of retribution had become skewed. Instead of being used as it was intended and allowing the courts to determine justice, it was being used to justify all sorts of personal revenge and violence, honestly like it's being used today. People were personally responding to injury with injury and justifying it by pointing to Deuteronomy 19, eye for an eye. So when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's talking to a culture that had forsaken the heart of this law and begun to abuse it. He's telling his followers to resist the temptation to allow your ego and self-justifying need to be right to lead you into a kind of revenge-violent action against a person who has wronged you. Do not resist means do not take matters into your own hands. Don't respond to violence with violence. Now that sounds really great, but that's really, really hard to do in the moment, right? I'm not generally an angry person, I don't think. Um, I'm not someone who normally wants revenge, but there are times, like when I'm driving, um, especially when I'm driving while hungry, I can be, I can be really wrathful. <laughs> Honestly, if someone cuts me off, I wanna cut them off. If someone honks at me, you better believe that I'm gonna honk back because I didn't do anything wrong and they need to know that I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I, took, I took my son, Liam, he's, he's almost three, I took him to this park uh, where 
people bring old toys and just kind of leave them there for kids to play with. And you know those old red and yellow Fisher-Price cars? They're like Fred Flintstone. They don't have a bottom, and the kids kind of use their feet. So he sees a car, and he goes to it. I'm watching him like, oh, this is so cute. He gets in the car, shuts the door, and the first thing he does is he starts slamming on the horn in the middle of this park and shouting, go, go, come on, go, go. (laughs) Now, that is objectively adorable, um, but it's also objectively sad because what it means is that my constant need for revenge on the road constant need to show other people how terrible they are at driving and how good I am at driving has actually seeped into my son to the point that when he gets into the car, the first thing he thinks is he should honk and yell at people. (laughs) And I'm glad you think it's funny because I actually think this is actually a a real problem in my life. And, And I'm serious, like it is a spiritual discipline for me to not yell at people when I'm driving. I need to practice that. And so that's, that's my natural heart tendency, and I'm guessing that a lot of us in here can relate to something like that. Jesus goes on in this passage to give examples of the kinds of responses that are to naturally flow from the heart of his followers. Look at what he says. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Again, remember, Jesus is concerned here with the heart of these illustrations, not necessarily the exact behaviors, because it can be really easy to become a legalist about these exact behaviors, to walk an extra mile and then refuse to walk another step because you already walked that extra mile, to turn the other cheek and then begin wailing on the person because you turned that cheek once. What Jesus is describing is the kind of person who meets the taking, demanding, consuming greed of an enemy with a heart that is generous in giving. All the actions that Jesus describes here are giving in the face of taking. Most scholars agree that what Jesus is talking about are the kinds of daily personal interactions with others that we have on a regular basis. He's talking about the coworker who doesn't like you, the boss who's mean, the family member who's incredibly hard to love, the friend who has just wronged you, the jerk who cuts you off in traffic and flips you off. And he's saying that his followers are to be the kind of generous giving people that even when faced with someone like that, with an enemy who's wronging you, you're to have a generous heart to them. Practically, I think that means asking ourselves, when we're interacting with a person that in the moment we're finding incredibly hard to love, do I have a generous heart towards this person even though they're making life difficult for me right now? actually checking in and saying, do I have a generous heart? Now that's a lot easier said than done, and it takes a lot of practice, I think, in the Holy Spirit, but that's the goal of this part of the sermon. It's to become a person who naturally has a generous heart even to our enemies. And that brings us to the probably more infamous infamous part of this passage, loving your enemies. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that, that actually isn't a law. The love your neighbor part is, but hate your enemy had become added. It had been added to that verse, and it kind of become the law, even though it wasn't actually in the Old Testament. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. 
but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, this is so hard, you guys. This is so hard. Um, Bertrand Russell, who was a really famous uh, British atheist philosopher from the 20th century, once remarked, I think really eloquently, about this passage. He said, love your enemies is good. There's nothing to be said against it, except it's too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. Uh, and he spelled practice with an S because he is British. Um, <laughs> so accepting the fact that loving our enemies is really hard, I think we have to ask ourselves a few questions to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying here. First, who is my enemy? Second, what does it mean to love? And third, what does it mean to love your enemies? So first, who is my enemy? And the answer to this question is, is short, I think, the way that I'm defining it. There are many ways to define your enemy, but the one I would use is, your enemy is anyone who you view as less than yourself. In doing so, you refuse to see them as an image bearer of God. So your enemy is anyone who you dismiss, or you hate, or you ignore, or your heart's response is to put yourself up here and to put them down here, because what you're doing is you're actually denying them the dignity of being a full human being in your eyes. So that's your enemy. Second, what does it mean to love? In this passage, uh, the word love is the Greek word agape, which is the purest form of love in Greek thought. It's kind of a self-sacrificial, uh, giving love. Um, it's also the name of dozens of Christian bookstores around the country. Uh, it's always agape, or it's like sunshine, S-O-N, shine, some, some sort of pun. Um, there is an agape right next to my house. That's the only reason it came to mind. But um, So what does it mean to love? I'm going to give you three different definitions of love that I think when you kind of combine them together form a pretty full picture. Uh, the first is from Dallas Willard, who's one of the, I think, best Christian thinkers from the last hundred years. And he defines this kind of love as to will the good of another, to will the good of another person. Uh, second definition, Martin Luther King, in a really beautiful sermon on this very passage of loving your enemies, and you should Google it, it is so good, I kind of wish that we could just play it for you as the sermon today. Um, this is what he says, he says, agape is something of the understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It's a love that seeks nothing in return. It's an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they're likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. The third definition is from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Love is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. So if we accept these definitions of love, and I think we should, we're left with the question, what does it look like then to love our enemies? So I think we tend to think of love, when we hear the word love, we tend to think of it as kind of a cheap, non-confrontational politeness that leaves everyone feeling kind of happy, right? What we hear when we hear Jesus commanding us to love is to be nice. Be nice to our enemies. Be nice to your neighbor as yourself. But I think you really only have to look at the life of Jesus to see that this is not a good way of understanding love, and that's not what Jesus means here. Jesus was not committed to making sure everyone felt emotionally happy around him. Jesus was not cheap, and he certainly was not nice. Jesus was infinitely kind and gentle and good, 
He was the embodiment of love itself. And I think that Jesus was actually the smartest person to ever live. We think of him as a very good person, maybe even a perfect person, but how often do we think of him as the smartest mind to ever walk this earth? I think that intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, ethically, he was the most brilliant mind to ever exist. And what I think that means when it comes to love is that Jesus loved perfectly in every situation, in every interaction. Whatever the circumstance, whoever was in front of him, whether it was family or friend or stranger or enemy, Jesus did exactly what love required in that moment. Remember our definitions of love. Willing the good of another, redemptive goodwill towards all men. Jesus always willed the good of whoever he was interacting with, and he had infinite redemptive goodwill towards them. And while that might seem obvious, of course Jesus was loving, If you actually look at the life of Jesus through that lens, you begin to realize some implications. Because what you see when you look at the life of Jesus is that the actions of love looked different depending on the situation or the person or persons in front of him. He didn't do the same thing every time. Love was different at times. At times, his love meant gentleness and a public affirmation of a person's dignity and worth. Right, so think of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was gentle, infinitely kind, I imagine him grabbing her by the hand and lifting her off her feet and looking her in the eyes and just affirming her worth and value in the eyes of God. Or think of the Samaritan woman at the well that he goes out of his way to talk to. At times, his love meant the healing of physical and spiritual or emotional trauma. So think of the the demon-possessed man living among the tombs, cutting himself for years, so strong that no chains could hold him. And Jesus seeks him out and frees him from that bondage. Think of the woman with the discharge of blood for 12 years that Jesus heals when she touches the hem of his robe. Or think of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's what love looked like in those moments. At times, Jesus' love meant calling out the hypocrisy of heart in people in a way that frankly seems insulting. He tells the Pharisees, you are a brood of vipers and you're evil men. Imagine if someone said that to you. You are a brood of vipers and you're an evil man. Or when he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He literally calls Peter Satan. That was him being perfectly loving in those moments. Think of the time that Jesus made a whip and overturned the tables in the courtyard of the temple, running merchants out of the courtyard because they were extorting the poor and taking advantage of the disenfranchised. That was an act of perfect love. And at times, his perfect love meant being silent and allowing himself to suffer unjustly, and to be killed. Think of him before Pilate not saying a word. Think of him on the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That was an act of perfect love towards his executioners, towards the crowd who wanted him dead, towards his family and followers watching him die, and I would argue towards all of us, humanity itself. I think it's really easy to believe that Jesus is being loving when he is healing people and being kind to them. But do you believe that he was being perfectly loving with the enemies that he confronted? What we see when we look at the life of Jesus is that love is a dynamic force. It's a dynamic force. And love requires wisdom. There's a wisdom element that goes hand in hand with loving another person. Wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. 
And what that means is the outward expression of love for our neighbors and for our enemies might change depending on the situation and the person, right? Willing what is good for another changes depending on who is in front of you. And guys, I, I'm just not, I'm so bad at this. And we need the Holy Spirit so badly to help us grow in this kind of wisdom, especially with our enemies because our enemies hurt us and they piss us off. And in some cases, they actually abuse us and dehumanize us. And I don't know about you, but I can justify pretty much any action in my anger, right? Think about when you're angry. You're always right. No one is angry and is like, oh yeah, I need to stop and think about what I'm saying. Like you just go because you know that you're right. Loving our enemies doesn't necessarily mean being nice to them, but it means willing their good. It means believing that God has infinite redemptive goodwill even to them. Do you see how dynamic love is? There are so many ways that love might look. Love might mean not returning an insult from a coworker and instead showing surprising patience and kindness to them. Loving an abusive spouse might actually mean leaving them and turning them into authorities so that for their own protection and the safety of those around them. Love might mean forgiving an enemy who wronged you and treating them with the respect that they just won't give you. It might mean forgiving them even though they will never apologize. Love might mean entering into a dialogue with your enemy, trying to understand their point of view, trying to understand where they're coming from. There are times, I, I think especially in, face, in the face of systems of evil and injustice, where love means protesting and nonviolently resisting. Think of the civil rights movement in our country, men and women like Martin Luther King, John Perkins, Rosa Parks, right? Rosa Parks refusing to move to the back of the bus using nonviolent resistance, if you know the history and story, was a premeditated act of love towards both the racist enemy in front of her and the racist system that encouraged such evil. That was an act of love that has a legacy to this day. And there are times when loving your enemies means looking a person full in the face and affirming that they're loved by God and actually speaking words of loving blessing and forgiveness over them, whether they want them or not. I think of the family members of the nine people killed by Dylan Roof at the Bible study in Charleston. Men and women like Nadine Collier, whose mother was murdered, standing in front of him at his sentencing, looking him in the face, and saying, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. At the core of loving your enemies is believing the truth that all men and women are made in the image of God and that God loves them and they are of infinite worth to him. That's what Martin Luther King is talking about from the quote I read earlier. And when you rise up to agape love on this level, you begin to love men not because they're likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And Martin Luther King came face to face with the worst kind of people. Loving our enemies means having a generous heart towards them and believing that they're made in the image of God and that God loves them and willing their good, actually wanting good things for them. And I think the only way, the only way to really get to this place, this place where you naturally have that kind of generous heart, is through prayer. Look at what Jesus says. He says, but I say love your enemies, and what? Pray for those who persecute you. He links loving your enemies to praying for them. And I think that there's something here, because when we pray for a person, it's really, really hard to walk away hating them. 
We can hate what they do, we can hate what they stand for, the lies that they believe, the injustice that they may perpetrate, but when we pray for a person, just the act of bringing them before God is acknowledging their value and worth and dignity, and the fact that they're an image bearer. Praying for our enemies affirms their worth and value in God's eyes and over time, over time, in our eyes as well. Because if I'm being honest, when I pray for my enemies, at first it's really hard to pray anything loving. I might actually have to pray through my own honest hatreds and prejudices and rage and my desire for God's justice to come really, really quickly. Right? I might not be ready to forgive, and, and that's, I think that's okay. I think that's not really, there's no use in pretending you're ready to forgive. We can't trick God into thinking that we're ready. But I think bringing that unforgiveness in our hearts before God in prayer and bringing our hate and bringing our prejudice and bringing our anger before God is actually what he wants us to do. If you look at the Psalms, they're full of prayers where the author prays through his hatreds of his enemy. And he uses, they use, incredibly raw and at times disturbing language. But the key is that they're actually exposing these dark parts of their hearts before the loving light of God. Because the transformative power of Jesus is so deep that he can turn even our hates into loves when we expose them to his presence over and over again. Bringing an enemy before the perfect loving presence of Jesus over and over in prayer will change our heart towards them. It allows us to have pity and love and empathy and grace and mercy and to see their value in God's eyes. It'll affect the way that we interact with them. It'll inform and grow us in the wisdom to know what it takes to love. Praying for our enemies eventually, I think, brings us to a place where we can pray like Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When Jesus prays this, he's acknowledging both the wrong that's being done to him and he's affirming the love of God for every person. Praying for our enemies affirms the realities of wrongs that need to be righted. It acknowledges the parts of our own hearts that lead us to hate and rage and view ourselves as better than other people. And it roots us in love, a love that is infinite, a love that is overflowing, a love that says every person, no matter how disfigured by evil at their core, bears the image of God and Christ died for them in love. Do you believe this, church? I'm gonna ask again. Do you believe this church? I, I kinda believe it. I half believe it. If I'm honest, there, there's a part of me that doesn't believe it, that wants to take matters into my own hands, that wants to meet violence with violence, that wants to crush my enemies and to prove how right I am and how wrong they are. But I know the, the carnage that that has left in my past the broken relationships, the hurt people. I know the ways that that thinking corrodes my own soul. And I have to believe and hope that the way of Jesus that he describes here is better. Because I sure as hell know the way that I do it leaves people really, really hurting. And so I have to pray every day, especially with a passage like this, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief that I could ever be a person who naturally loves an enemy. I'm so far from that. 
Lord, help my unbelief that this way is a better way because when I look at the world around me, when I look at the news, when I look at politics, when I look and hear stories of coworkers, friends, and family, all I hear is that the people who live the opposite of this way, who take and take and do whatever it takes to win and get to the top, use power to crush people and leave a, a trail of lives in their wake, those are the people who are successful in this world. Lord, help my unbelief that this way is actually the more powerful way. Because the story of scripture, the story of Jesus, is that his love for enemies brings him to the cross. And what we believe, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that that love wins in the end. That kind of love, a love for enemies, wins in the end. Help our unbelief. I'll let Martin Luther King, from his sermon on this passage, have the last word. He is someone who who I think really believed Jesus' words and lived a life of loving his enemies. He says this, Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go so far as to say it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for our enemies. Would you pray with me? Jesus, these words are so hard. And I stand before you, before this church today, as someone who just doesn't do this that often. Feels like I have to exert a lot of effort to even get my heart to a place where I don't view myself as better than other people. But God, your invitation is to become a type, the type of person who naturally has a generous heart towards every person. And so, what I want us to do right now is I actually want to do a little prayer exercise. I'd like you to, as you sit there with your eyes closed, to picture in your mind the first person that comes into your mind when you think of who your enemy is. And I want you to behold them. I want you to look at them. I want you to notice what they look like and what they're wearing. Notice what their facial expression is. Notice what comes up in your heart, the feelings, the emotions, maybe the physical sensations that come up in your body. And I want you to pray through those feelings to Jesus right now. All you have to do is just pray, Jesus, I feel hate towards this person. Would you take my hate? Jesus, I feel deep anxiety, my body is tensing up. Would you meet me in my anxiety and tension? Now I want us to ask Jesus to help us see that this person is someone that he loves 
and bled and suffered and died for. Just ask him, Jesus, would you help me see? And now would you ask Jesus, what is required of me? What does love look like towards this enemy? What might love require? How do I will their good? Christ, thank you that you meet us where we're at. There are some of us in here, and I'll include myself, where even a prayer exercise like that is really, really hard, and frankly, I don't want to pray for my enemy. I'd rather just judge them silently in my heart. But God, you meet us even in that place, and you tell us that there is another way, a better way, a way that led you to death and through death for the sake of your whole creation, for the sake of the enemy that we just thought of, for the sake of ourselves. We all desperately need the love and grace of God towards his enemies. God, would you help us? Would you help our unbelief? Would you help us to believe that this kind of love of enemies is a powerful love that can transform our lives and our communities and our world?